0: Hello, and welcome back to Tectonic, a podcast that looks at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. Last week, we talked to Phil Libin, an entrepreneur who believes that artificial intelligence is about to become part of the fabric of all of our lives. This week, we hear from a US Army veteran who has been fighting cyber criminals in the private sector for over a decade.
1: I will say that the system's hit hard by WannaCry the national health system in the UK, they are notoriously hard to upgrade those things. Those machines are built with very specific purposes. Nobody wants to change them because they might break them. So they're running really old versions of operating systems and they never ever get updated. So it's easy for me to sit here and say, oh, just patch your systems. But for that community, it's really hard to do.
0: That was Rick Howard, chief security officer of Palo Alto Networks. He spoke to the FT's Hannah Kushler about the current state of cybersecurity.
2: There were two major cyber attacks that hit companies across the world this year. One was WannaCry and the other was NotPetya. They hit international shipping and the operations of several companies and led to production plants stopping work and people being unable to communicate while trying to address the attack. Let's take a step back. What does it say about the state of cybersecurity today that these kind of large, rapid and damaging attacks can still
1: happen? this probably should not have happened okay the way that both of these attacks spread we know how to stop these things for geez since the early 2000s right in the early days those massive worms that i grew up on that hit the, the internet seemed like every day they used this very kind of an attack And so what most people did was block that method now. The fact that they saw all this happen was, ooh, we should have known better by now.
2: There was some talk, for example, with WannaCry that it was just people not patching their systems. But it wasn't always people being neglectful, was it?
1: There's a couple ways you could have protected yourself from this, right? One is you could have patched your systems. But I will say that the systems hit hard by WannaCry, the national health system in the UK... They are notoriously hard to upgrade those things. Those machines are built with very specific purposes. Nobody wants to change them because they might break them. So they're running really old versions of operating systems and they never, ever get updated. So it's easy for me to sit here and say, oh, just patch your systems. But for that community, it's really hard to do. But for one thing they could have done in the WannaCry specifically, the propagation method was taking advantage of the SMB protocol. It was designed years and years ago to make computers on the same local network communicate with each other. It was never designed to be an internet communications protocol. And so what most people did in the early 2000s was block that, okay, at the firewall. For some reason, these companies that got damaged by this attack did not have that blocked at the firewall. So they were were susceptible to that kind of massive worm attack.
2: So it should have been something that was only within your internal network, but in fact, it ended up being connected to the internet. There was a lot of concern at the time that What we were seeing was the proliferation of vulnerabilities that had been originally discovered in this case by the NSA, but we also know that other countries do have nation state capabilities and have teams finding these vulnerabilities for their own espionage and things. We were seeing the proliferation of those kind of tools getting down into the hands of anyone. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that is a sign of things to come?
1: What you're talking about is something the industry calls zero-day exploits. What that means is that before these two attacks happened, no network defender like me had ever seen an adversary attack a victim with this kind of software before. And they're really hard to make. And every, like you said, every nation state on the planet that is playing in the cyberspace has teams of people trying to make these zero-day exploits so they can use them in their espionage operations. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So if you inadvertently leave your zero-day exploits out in some public web server, yes, every hacker on the planet is going to try to use that zero-day exploit for whatever they're trying to get done. Do I think they're trying to do that? No. But uh, if it's are just sitting out there, why wouldn't you use it? Because you don't have to spend the years developing it yourself.
2: But do you think it's just that, that in this case, this was chance that this was available? Or do you think that actually we're just seeing increasing level of sophistication, the sophistication we used to associate with nation states, falling down into the hands of people who are using hacking to make money?
1: Oh, I mean, there are tiers of professionalism in the hacker community, both on the white hat and the gray hat and the black hat side. And like I said, it takes years to develop these things. So when they just kind of pop up in your backyard, why wouldn't you use it so you don't have to spend that time? There are cyber criminal gangs, there are cyber hacktivist gangs, there are cyber nuisance gangs that try to develop these things all the time, too. Nation states have teams of people do it. They have people on the payroll trying to figure it out. So they try to collect sets of them so they can use them in their operations.
2: So you have seen so many different attacks over the years. I mean, did anything surprise you about WannaCry or was it in a way NotPetya that was the more unusual?
1: NotPetya was the more unusual because the reason they got tied together because they happened really close together.
2: Yeah, it was May for WannaCry and NotPetya was in June.
1: Yes. And then Microsoft released a patch for the zero-day exploit before anybody knew there was a zero-day exploit. So so I,
2: technically, if you could patch your systems, you would never have had a problem because the patch was available before yeah. the
1: vulnerability was released to the yeah, public. You could have. And most people did, okay, but some people did not. Why not is unique, though, was they really didn't seem like they were trying to make any money, right? And if you looked at who they targeted and how they did the initial infection vector, they actually compromised the software update service for a tax service in Ukraine. They compromise that and then deliver the exploit through that to update service. So you can make the argument that whoever was behind these attacks were trying to upset the country of Ukraine.
2: And it just got out of hand because other people use that software too. That was the
1: initial entry. And eighty percent of the of Ukraine's businesses use that tax software. So they were gonna get hit. And then it would spread in other ways. So they would use the SMB thing that we talked about for WannaCry. They would try to do that also, right? So that's the reason other folks got hit too.
2: As much as it may sound like it's Russians trying to hit Ukraine, we actually don't have evidence. No one has come out and said that.
1: It's really hard to attribute it, okay? But, you know, you could just pick up anecdotes and bullets of evidence, right? So... Who would be behind somebody trying to target Ukraine? Who would have an interest in destabilizing that country? There's lots of suspects, right? And trying to pin it down in the public is really hard to do. I mean,
2: Ukraine has been subject to a lot of different kinds of cyber attacks. And in fact, seems to almost be a bit of a testing ground for some of the stuff that is now happening elsewhere.
1: And you were talking about Russia. Russia has publicly stated that they use cyberspace as another form of war as a way to destabilize and influence operations or influence opinions and you know, try to influence countries around the world through cyberspace. And not being very specific about that. They hide it in various things. In fake news, they hide it in ransomware campaigns and other kinds of things. That's their publicly stated mission.
2: Fake news was something that before it even became a term in the U.S. was being used a lot in Ukraine. Is the cybersecurity industry paying particular attention? to Ukraine to see what might end up happening elsewhere?
1: Well, of course. Uh, there's lots of activity going on in Ukraine. Uh, so we can find out and discover how the adversaries operate in cyberspace by just watching what happens From Absolutely. There's places all over the world that that stuff's going on. Uh, in the Middle East, it's heavy. In the US, it's heavy. There's no one space, I would say, that people are getting attacked more than others.
2: Let's um, imagine we're one of these companies that was hit mm-hmm. by either WannaCry or NotPetya. What happened to them and how did they cope?
1: What really should happen in most organizations is you should prepare before that happens. Ransomware attacks have been around for a number of years, over a decade. They really got successful here in the last two or three years.
2: And that was because of Bitcoin,
1: right? Well, Bitcoin helps, but it's also they've gotten more mature in how they do things. You know, even in the early 2000s, there have been people that would do something to your machine and request you know money to get it back because of cryptocurrencies and other innovations. It's much more efficient these days. And then what it has done is increase the aperture for potential victims. If you're a cyber criminal in the old days, you would be going after credit card information. And getting money out of a credit card system is really hard. The hacking part of it, that's the easy part. Once you have the credit card information, how do you get money out of that and not get caught? Uh, So it's really hard to do that. And uh, when ransomware came around, now everybody that has a computer on the internet could be a potential victim. And the way it works is they come after your computer, they encrypt the hard drive, and then they call you and say, pay us some money in some cryptocurrency to get your files back. That's very interesting, all right? Some
2: of them are very organized, they even have their own like help centers to help people oh, do
1: it. We tracked a couple of these guys, right? And one of these organizations went after the home user and they would encrypt grandma's computer, okay? And then somebody from Eastern Germany or Eastern Europe would call grandma on the phone in the States and say, if you want your pictures of your cats or your grandkids back, pay us $500 in Bitcoin. Now, have you ever done a Bitcoin transaction?
2: I haven't, but I uh, I think I would need guiding, let alone <laughs> grandma, yeah. Yeah,
1: even techies struggle with this. It's a three or four hour deal to do the first one, right? So this thing about the back office support that some of these criminal organizations have, somebody from Eastern Europe called grandma in a second language and walked her through a $500 Bitcoin transaction. This group that we were tracking in 90 days made over $700 million. It is a well-oiled business machine. In fact, it's a well-oiled business. I wish I had that back office support for our own company, right? It is kind of crossing the line a little bit in the criminal area that makes it bad.
2: Yeah. So you're saying ransomware has been around. It's been getting more common. Mm -hmm. Companies should have been able to deal with it. But if if your machine is seized by ransomware and your network is because you're a company, how does a company deal with it? Do people just secretly pay the ransom? Some people pay.
1: Okay. And it's easy to see because cryptocurrencies make it easy for us to see how much people are paying. But really, the way you protect yourself against ransomware is not after the fact. Then it's too late. You can't get the files back. Really, it's a very simple thing, something we've all known how to do since the internet started. You need to back up your files. Mm. Okay, You need to back up all your files and more importantly, you need to practice restoring them. Okay, Most people forget that last step and say, oh yeah, I backed up all my files and when they go to restore them, they realize they don't really have the procedures right. Is it a pain in the backside? Yes, Okay, but that will definitely not make you have to pay these criminals for a ransomware attack. You can get back in business in a couple of days.
2: Because it was interesting during some of these attacks. I mean, the um, MERS chief executive said it was a shocking experience. His email went down. He was having to use... WhatsApp on private phones, <laughs> and there were container ships at sea. Reckitt said, and uh, Record this is, said it took five days to restore most of its computer system and two weeks to get manufacturing sites back to producing close to normal mm-hmm. capacity.
1: And think of the millions of dollars lost when a big organization like that can't operate.
2: Yeah, it hit their earnings reports, which is probably one of the first times we've actually seen people attribute problems in earnings to cyber attacks. Yeah,
1: in, in their earnings statement, one of those companies said $200 million at least in damage to recover it's probably going to be more than that. That's significant.
2: So what kind of alternative systems do you recommend for people in the moment to use?
1: They're just totally lost. I don't know how to recover from that. I'm not doing that in my own organization. Yeah. We've we've implemented and practiced our plan, right? Yeah. I would just say one more thing about that. How you communicate what you've done is as important as what you actually have done. How you decide to go public or when to go public that all needs to be decided well before anything nasty happens. You do not want to be de- making that up on the fly as you work through this crisis. If you've done everything properly, you probably have thought about this once or twice before it actually happens.
2: Yes, yes, because you're having to deal with all sorts of regulations, and you don't want to accidentally say mm-hmm. something that's going to make the SEC think it's material.
1: And you're making a, you're making a hard choice because you can either decide to go early and tell everybody everything, and because that information will change as we discover more, or you hold it, and you don't publish until later, but then you're accused of not telling the public what was going on. In the first place. So those are all schemes that you have to decide beforehand. And you definitely, like like said, you do not want to be making that up during the crisis.
2: And so what lessons do you think the companies who were hit are learning, and is this spread out? Did this shake other boards around the country and the world, and that they start to think, oh, we need to be paying a bit more attention to cybersecurity? I would say in the
1: last four years, board members have really decided that this is an important thing to them. They're still struggling okay, to understand it all. But I would I give them some solace, right? This is not something scary and different from any other kind of risk that they handle anyway. Their job is to figure out what to do about risk to the business, at least that's part of it. All right, this is just one others. What they need to demand from their technical staff, people like me, is to make sure they convey the technical risk into business risk that they can understand. I go around asking everybody, you know, of the gazillion things that I do every day, what is it that I'm really trying to do? If you can write a Twitter line, okay, for what I do for a living, and this is what it is, preventing material impact to the company. Right, And all your efforts should be doing that. And whatever we bring to the board for security purchases or future plans should be, how do you reduce that risk to material impact? And the board members should be asking those questions of their technical staff to make sure they are satisfied with those answers. Actually,
2: in the wake of um, the attacks, some cybersecurity companies said that they thought that there would be a booster in buying by companies who would want you know, the most up-to-date solutions. Have we seen that across the industry?
1: Uh, we haven't seen that. As it, all of a sudden, WannaCry happens and everybody gets their checkbook out. No. But as boards become more and more aware, uh, cybersecurity organizations, chief security officers like me, CIOs, CTOs, okay, are really thinking hard about the real plan for cybersecurity for their company, right? It's matured in the last decade. It used to be people would look around and see the other members in the industry, and how much are they spending? Well, we should spend as much as those guys. That's really- One dollar (laughs) more. Yeah, one dollar more. That's not really an effective security program. Yeah. I
2: have a lot of sympathy for them because it's an incredibly crowded market, right? Mm -hmm. Cybersecurity still is fractured. For as long as I've been writing about it, people have been saying that this market is going to consolidate, and Mm -hmm. it still hasn't.
1: Well, it's interesting you say that because we are going through a massive evolution. When I started, started, first started doing this in the early 90s, uh, we used a philosophy called defense in depth. And what that meant was we bought a bunch of security tools and we threw them into our network and we hoped that the bad guy would run into them. You know, and that worked for a little while. But and then around 2010, Lockheed Martin wrote a white paper about kill chains. This is a famous paper in the geek community. But it changed how we thought about adversaries and how we protect our enterprises. And if you go back to these attacks we're talking about today, it's a very specific example of this. It doesn't matter what the adversary's motive is or what tools they use. They all have to do some very specific things to have success against one of their victims. They have to deliver some kind of uh, attack mechanism to their to an endpoint somewhere. They have to compromise that endpoint. So they, they have
2: to find a door. They have to get through it. Right.
1: Then they establish a command and control channel to bring more stuff down, more tools. Once they do that, they normally extend laterally inside the victim's network trying to find the data they've come to steal. Once they find it, then they exfiltrate it out through that command and control channel. Every adversary that has operated does some form of those attacks whenever they go. WannaCry and NotPetya did the exact same thing, right? So in WannaCry, the delivery was the S&B protocol through the internet, which should not have been opened, by the way. They established a beachhead with the external blue zero-day exploit. That's the NSA. They established a command and control with something called the double pulsar. It sounds very cool, but that's how they did it. It's a little software program they used. And that's how they got their victims, right? That was a want to What we've known in the industry then is we should be putting security control specifically at each of those stages, right? Which we've done. Most of the industry has done that. What that means is the number of tools we have has exploded.
2: It's like moat after moat after yeah. moat. Right? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And it's become unmanageable. You can't manage all that stuff. So what's happening in the industry, it's all consolidating down to big platform plays. All the firewall vendors do this. We do it. The other four firewall vendors do that, too, where you put as much of that stuff in one box as possible. Okay, but here's what's happening, which is kind of cool. If You think about what a firewall does, and it does a gazillion things, all right? But really, if you abstract it up, it does like three things. It collects intelligence on the network. It processes the intelligence looking for bad things. If it finds it, it blocks it. That's what it does. Firewall vendors for the last five years have been experimenting with putting the collection and the processing piece up in the cloud, because essentially we have infinite processing capability and infinite storage in the cloud, whereas on a box in a network, we do not. Right? So we put applications on top of that data and look for bad things in the network. All right? So pretty cool. That's been working for five years. The next evolution, though, here's where it's going to be disrupted. We're going to open that up to other third-party security vendors it means that some startups uh, security company can write an application stick it up in the Palo Alto Networks cloud let's say they'll find bad things and use the firewalls we already have deployed in our customer base to block bad guys right
2: so it's like an app store
1: it's like an app store now instead of having to deploy new tools in my network every time some new thing comes out and takes years to get done and lots of people have to maintain it and Watch it and update it.
2: And we know that this is a huge problem because there's a shortage of 2 million cybersecurity professionals by 2020. So we
1: just don't have the way to do it. So this new model, though, will allow you to deploy new tools in the same way you're going to download the latest Angry Birds app on your iPhone. All right. No fuss, no bust, And you can try to see if you like it or not. So that's where the evolution is going.
2: Yeah. I can see that there are boards that should be spending more money. There are boards who should be thinking more carefully about the kinds of products that they are deploying, about the teams that they're deploying. But the bigger picture here seems to be, to me, if this kind of thing had happened to those companies, but it wasn't online, they wouldn't be made to defend themselves. You know, if we think about this ransomware analogy, if in the real world, someone was taking their factory hostage, Mm -hmm. you would have the police there. Mm -hmm. If in the real world you were being disrupted by a nation state, you would have the military there. How much should companies be taking this responsibility, and how much should we be worried about what law enforcement can do?
1: Well, when we went to the internet, that made the problem exponential in size. The government, law enforcement, they're not going to have the resources to handle every attack that you just mentioned. It's just, it's an undoable problem the fix the the right solution is to automate as much as we can the adversaries are automating
2: oh yeah exactly it's an ai race it can it's not just the That's defenses
1: right. okay and so uh, all of us have to be in that too and we have stopped uh, most organizations have not automated there's still people in the back trying to receive intelligence about bad guys, read it, decide what to do about it, and then try to do something about it. That's taking weeks to months to never yes, to get done.
2: Information sharing. I, yeah. I get bored of hearing how much people want to information share, but then I realized that a lot of it was being done by PDF.
1: Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, And email and spreadsheets. It's like, okay, okay that's not going to happen. Only big organizations can do that because they have people and money to throw at it. If you're the small community bank that has two guys and a dog in the back room that's managing the printer and getting coffee and managing the firewall, those guys are never gonna be able to keep up with that. So it has to be automated. And what's great about that is the security community knows about 99% of what goes on in the world, all the bad guy stuff. If we share it with each other, which we are doing with an effort that we're helping with called the Cyber Threat Alliance. These are security vendors that get together and share threat information with each other so that our customers don't have to. Right, because each of the vendors has a way to update their own products. So the idea then is we get all the information in one spot, we can, you know, completely blanket the world with whatever protections. This we can. is the
2: effort being led by Michael Daniels.
1: Yes. Okay, he's the he's president of the Cyber Threat Alliance. He was President Obama's cyber czar. Okay, so you know, he know has a little gravitas. Okay, that's good. Uh, so that's the kind of thing we're all trying to do is automate the processes as much as possible.
2: It seems to make sense, but I do wonder whether, have we actually seen, for example, in Warner Cry or NotPetya, any sense that law enforcement has done anything?
1: Law enforcement's hard, okay, uh, because attribution is hard. First, we have to figure out who it is, and then they if you figure it out, now they get international borders. So that's a complex mix. It does not operate at the speed of the Internet. So yes, law enforcement has successes, but it takes years for them to do it. I was
2: going to say, I feel like there have been a couple more high-profile arrests sure, sure. recently, um, which seem to imply that work is being done and that people are not throwing up their hands and saying, "Goodness, we can never catch a cyber criminal.
1: I agree with that. Right? Uh, there are some outstanding work being done, and the law enforcement guys are working hard to get all that. But it is still at the speed of a courtroom and not at the speed of you know the internet. I tell you what, I'd like to see. Over at Microsoft, uh, there's a guy by the name of Richard uh, Boscovich He helps with the Microsoft Digital Crimes Unit. They've been doing this for years where they take a bunch of lawyers and a bunch of techies and they figure out how to dismantle the criminal infrastructure of the bad guys. And they've had huge success with it.
2: They're taking, botnets and taking down like botnets. Taking that. down botnets.
1: So that, that command and control thing I told you about, that is a huge infrastructure deployed all around the internet okay, for every criminal group that does it. And they've had huge success taking those down one by one. What really is needed, though, is somebody like in the U.S., DHS, to say, let's hire 100 lawyers and 100 technicians and just make that their focus to dismantle those guys. Right? Uh, that would be something fabulous, I believe, it's something that could be done.
2: And do you think there's any moves within the current administration to do that?
1: I have not heard any move. That's kind of my fantasy thing. Okay, but in every organization, every place I go, in conferences and interviews like this, people talk about the cyber moonshot. Right. So, what would in ten years, what would you want it to be? Let's not worry about how we might do that, but what would it look like in ten years? And any discussion I have with that is uh, some version of the hundred lawyers taking down botnet infrastructure. That has to be in there.
2: And the cyber moonshot seems very worth working towards maybe even more so than a self-driving car or <laughs> uh, given that the cybersecurity is also going to be an issue in self-driving cars. It yeah, could I help think with so. It'd be
1: nice to have that figured before the cars start driving themselves, yes.
2: <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me. I guess my last question really is, you know, could this happen again?
1: Oh, absolutely. Okay. It absolutely can happen again. Ransomware is happening all the time, by the way. There's a number of families. I think the last time we looked at it. 30 different families of ransomware out there. Meaning that there are adversaries that have a very different technique down that kill chain I was telling you about going after victims. So that could happen. As zero-day exploits get found, yes, that's going to be wrapped up into adversary campaigns because that's what I would do. If I was a bad guy, why would I build it myself? I would definitely steal it from somebody else. So, yes, that's all going to happen again. Whether or not the NSA gets more stuff thrown out remains to be seen.
2: All right. Well, thank you very much, Rick Howard, for joining me.
1: Thanks, Hannah. It was a pleasure.
0: We'll be back next week with another episode of Tectonic. In the meantime, if you'd like to comment on today's show or suggest any topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes, please email us at tectonicft.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast app, and if you write a review, that will help other people find us too. Thanks for listening.